Welcome to Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Rachel Gottbaum. Today, the plight of primary care. Why we're losing the battle and seeing more doctors flee primary care and fewer entering the profession at all. It's turned us into a, a widget factory of just throughput, getting people in, getting people transferred onto money-making specialties without really addressing their healthcare needs. And it's demoralizing and it's not good care. This is Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. My name is Jim Williams. I'm a family physician. I have run a small concierge medical practice for eight and a half years. Uh, prior to that, I worked with my father in the primary care practice. He operated for 49 years. After he retired, I, I worked for a large healthcare company that owns multiple hospitals for three years. And then I started this concierge practice. My father's practice, he started it in Woodbridge, Virginia in 1962. I joined him in 2001 and we practiced in that same office till he retired in 2011. I chose family medicine before medical school when I participated in a seminar with my dad and I heard him talking about these families. He was taking care of four generations of families. And so it was the chance to join this community, join this family business, you know, our family's history and tradition in Woodbridge. My father's medical practice survived just fine with very few changes. In fact, patients would comment it was the same furniture from the 1960s, but we didn't have to change much. In fact, in, in 49 years, he had only three different receptionists. They came, they stayed, they retired. When the Affordable Care Act passed, all of a sudden, so many changes came to us. We had to convert to an electronic medical record and we had to increase our HIPAA compliance in so many ways. And all of the bundled expectations that came, we, we needed completely new staff to handle all the technology that needed to be incorporated into the practice. And overnight, our costs soared and everyone was working harder to accomplish less, seeing patients every seven or eight minutes. My dad was 78, I needed to find another doctor and I couldn't, no one wanted to join this group. Everyone was going to work for the hospital-owned practices and the hospitals were calling. They were cold calling me, offering to buy it. So there I was with a retiring father and a retiring staff I had two hospital systems offering to buy the practice, and uh, you know I became a corporate employee in 2011. The hospital company that took over the practice wanted things done a certain way, uh, and there was really no room, no room for sort of personalization of the experience between doctor and patient. What was lost was the, the little room with the little paper chart and just the chance to really talk and have time to really talk. You know, if you go to the doc and you've just got a sore throat and that strep test is positive, 
Seven minutes is plenty, really. You just need your penicillin. But if, if it's an 84-year-old who's slow because of the arthritis and memory is not what it used to be, and there are six problems, it's an hour and probably also a phone call to her daughter as well uh, afterwards. And so a lot, a lot became impossible overnight. The office was managed in a very compartmentalized fashion. The scheduler was generally not on site. It was a call center. And, you know, you got to work and you saw what was on your schedule. And it was the day divided up to 10, 15, and, and 20 minute slots. 20 minutes was a, a yearly physical. And then as the day goes by, you click on your inbox on your computer medical record. And by 10 a.m., there were 15 prescription requests, refill requests, and three, you know, please call this person back. She has a, a cough or she has this problem. And some of these were people I had never met. So, you know, then by three o'clock, you're just thinking to yourself, how am I going to finish this safely without really making anybody mad at me? And if one of my patients ended up in the ER, uh, you know, I'm the primary care physician. I'm the one person on the hospital campus that they know. They're in the ER and I don't even know it. What was quickly missing, you know, the key things we go into medicine for, you know, we want to help people. And the way we can help people, yes, it's based on our knowledge, but the knowledge isn't nearly enough. It's got to be the relationship. You know, when you find cancer, and you know that this person is going to need, or in the coming days and weeks, someone's going to need, you know, perhaps a CT scan uh, and then a consultation and get a biopsy and then maybe a consultation with an oncologist. And then maybe here comes surgery or here comes chemo. That protocol, that's easy to find. And often the patients have already sketched the outline of what that's going to be. But talking someone through all of that and making sure they understand so that this person is gonna be able to sleep at night knowing they've got help, that takes a relationship. The information doesn't help the person sleep at night. There's that, in fact, to the opposite. They stay up all night reading the internet. But having that, that relationship with a physician where you can talk it all through and now you're not just getting the right information, but you're getting great care. I'm in this new corporate job. It had been about two years. And some of my patients were making the commute from Woodbridge, Virginia, up to Washington, D.C. To, uh, to stay with me. And so patients like that and other patients, I started giving them my cell phone number and my email. Uh, I didn't want them to end up in the ER again and me not know about it. If there was one way or another, I was going to try to make a difference. And I was taking these calls and these emails after hours and I realized, hey, this, this is the only way to practice. This is the only way to keep the relationship in the practice, to keep it patient focused. But it's also completely incompatible with the job I'm in. As I was practicing, I wasn't providing great care to my patients and I wasn't gonna be able to keep it up. So I started talking to other doctors who had found a way keep their independence. And the more people I talked to, the more I heard about this concierge model and how it worked. So what it means is this, the patients pay an annual membership fee. 
It's like your Netflix or your Costco. And after that, there are other charges. You know, if you come to the office and have a flu shot or a medical exam or whatever else may be, those charges go to your insurance plan. With the revenue from the annual membership fee, I can keep the practice a size that is a fraction of what it was in the corporate world. So instead of having 3,000 or 4,000 patients assigned to me, it's just a few hundred. Appointments can be 30, 60, or 90 minutes long. There's always an hour available the same day. If someone were to call right now, I could see them at 1 p.m. And I also have time to coordinate care, and my staff does too. It makes me feel like I'm much more valuable to my colleagues, the specialists who don't get the chance to know my patients as well, and they can rely on my staff and I, such that we become far more integral in all of their care, not just the care they get from us. My sort of medical IQ is way up because I have the time to communicate with their specialists, even accompany them to some office visits and be there when they're in the ER. And every day when they're in the hospital, I get to go over there and, and be a part of their hospital care. I never got to do that. It's, it's a harder job. You're on call. But it feels a lot less like work and just a lot more of who I am. On my wish list is to figure out how to demonstrate to Medicare and other health insurance companies how much money we save them. Because with our same day availability, our house calls, our close communication with the family of our patients, our ability to keep people out of the emergency rooms, you order fewer CT scans, you order fewer lab tests, all those things that Medicare can't even afford now we don't need as much of because with our time, with the human touch, we reduce costs. People like me, we have our independent street. We feel like we're the doctor. We should be making these decisions. We should be the one directing care. This is why we're here. This is what we can be good at. You've got to let us do it and we need time to do it. This is Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Rachel Gottbaum. To discuss the state of primary care and how we got here, we're joined by Chris Kohler. He's president of the Millbank Memorial Fund and former insurance commissioner of the state of Rhode Island. We're also joined by Dr. Kavita Patel. She's a primary care physician in Maryland and she's former director of policy for the Office of Intergovernmental Affairs and Public Engagement in the Obama administration. So Chris Kohler, I want to start with you. You folks did a report card on primary care and had, you know, and had some pretty startling findings about access to primary care in an era when we have more insurance, more people are insured, 
record numbers that indicate why and how we're doing worse here with primary care. What did you find? And let's talk about what's behind that and what's the significance of it. Primary care is the only part of the healthcare system where we've been able to show that an increased supply is associated with improved health, improved lifespan, and improved equity. The Millbank Memorial Fund looked at the status of four aspects of primary care, of financing, of access, of workforce, and of research. And primary care is fragile and weakening in the United States. The portion of dollars that's going to primary care in the U.S. is declining. It's declining across all payers. We're stuck in a payment system for primary care that uh, does not reward team-based care. In terms of access to primary care, what we found is that even though we have increased the portion of people with insurance coverage in the United States to record high levels, there are fewer and fewer people who report having a usual source of care. Care is fundamentally about a relationship, about a place that we go when we're not feeling good, when we're trying to figure out how to navigate the health system. And fewer and fewer people report having that. And the supply of primary care clinicians varies by up to 50% across the country. And there's an increasing gap between the haves and the have-nots, the areas that have a lot of primary care and those that don't. Our workforce training is failing the United States. It's training fewer primary clinicians. It's training them on the coasts and in hospitals and not in communities where it's needed. It's going to get worse. 2010, one in three doctors was practicing primary care. In 2020, we were churning out one in five medical school graduates going into primary care. And then finally, overall, we spend about 6% of our healthcare dollar in primary care. That's less than other countries. But we only spend 0.2% of our research funding on primary care. So we're much more concerned with end-of-life diseases than we are with these basic medical services that can improve the health of populations. So in other words, we have more insured people who aren't having access to continual preventative care through primary care. Dr. Patel, perhaps you can address what you're seeing here. So on a typical full day, I'll see anywhere between 24 to 32 patients. And a lot of those visits are double booked, sometimes triple booked. And it's really because I have somebody that I have a continuity relationship with, someone who knows me as their primary care doctor. And the truth is that if I were to just hopefully find a quote, open spot, Rachel, with just even the most nimble of scheduling, we're all so far booked with primary care visits that the earliest I could get people in would be like six to eight weeks. And it doesn't make you feel good when you have a problem and you need to see your doctor who knows you and has had a relationship with you for years in six to eight weeks. My happiest time is when I'm sitting in the room. I try to put the computer away. Even I'm sick of looking at a screen and they're really not looking forward to having me looking at the screen. But at some point, I got to get all the screen work done. So I try desperately. I've um, taken classes. Many of us are trying to take classes on the side on how to chart more effectively so that we can make more out of our time in that 15-minute visit. And so there is no way for anybody to get access if they need to outside of a very well-planned, thought-out primary care visit that one might say schedule six months in advance. That's just not what care is. 
care happens in that 99.999% of a person's life. And I have no time to have access to it. And they have no ability to get me. And, and I was part of the senior staff in Congress when we put forward the provisions that mandated the use of electronic health records. Along with that came very generous financial incentives because the data had been mounting that that's just better and safer for patients. I will tell you that, you know, inbox fatigue, all of these things that people describe are very real because there is a palpable sense of dread every time I look at the message portal. And what we've done is we've facilitated what I think is terrible triage. You think, Rachel, that you as a patient with your chart and access to a patient portal means better access to your doctor. But if I were to tell you that I have hundreds of messages, I try to read through and see which ones are the ones that I really need to deal with. I, it's, it's very daunting. And so I, as a hack, have given my continuity patients my cell phone. I've hacked around what I would say is this incredible, well thought out, you know, what we thought policy to let people coordinate their care and have better access in general. And, you know, my better access is my phone. And that's how patients actually get real stuff done with me. So what happened here? Maybe, Chris Kohler, you can address it, and then Dr. Patel as well, because Obamacare happened, we invested in medical homes, we insured people, but yet somehow the system is squeezing out primary care. What is going on? It's not new news that we undervalue primary care in the United States. We've always underpaid for primary care. What's made it worse? Why is there, as Kavita says, a a palpable concern about access that wasn't there 10 or 15 years ago? I think the digital demands are really part of it. I talked to primary care clinician friends and they share Kavita's palpable sense of dread at the inbox and not being able to keep up with the demands, with the expectations that are placed on them. So we have increased digital demands. We also have increased, let's call it measurement demands, in this move towards population-based accountability. We're not asking our dermatologists to assume population-based accountability. We're not asking our emergency room clinicians. We're asking our primary care clinicians. So you have a digital demand, you have a workload demand, and you have increasing economic opportunities created by pharmaceuticals created by payment reform that has created increased consolidation, that has created other options for primary care clinicians to do their work in ways other than the population-based, relation-based care that Kavita was speaking to. So 15 years ago, we didn't have this quasi-primary care option of being a hospitalist, of taking your primary care trade and practicing it inside a hospital to help get patients out. So All that has made the practice of, I don't even want to call it traditional primary care. I want to call it community-based primary care, less and less attractive for clinicians. And and we know how to do high-quality primary care. We know how to do team-based care that releases some of the pressure that Kavita spoke to. We just don't know how to encourage it. We don't know how to scale it. We don't know how to replicate it. Dr. Patel, Primary care, as, as Chris Kohler says, it's not valued, but it's used to help make money for the system as we see more hospital-based systems buy up 
primary care practices. What happened here? If you look at an average Medicare patient and how many specialists they see or how many medications they take, they often have more than one or two or even three doctors. In primary care, everything just rolls down to us. If it's something that one of their other specialists can't deal with or they can't get a hold of, et cetera, comes to us. In turn, we are also that platform, that bench foundation for which every health system and specialist needs for their referral base. So you could not run a health system without a primary care strategy. And when I sat in rooms with people who ran hospitals and health systems, we were referred to as the referral base. Like, well, we can't, even though primary care often lost money, that there was never a conversation about changing that finance dynamic because the downstream referrals into all the other specialties or into imaging and hospital-based services was so lucrative that you had to keep primary care clinicians. But it's further alienated many of my physician colleagues who, at the end of the day, were tired of being called providers. We, we want to be called physicians. And so it's begging the question of, honestly, Rachel, what is the value of a primary care physician? And will that such you know, unicorn of a person exist in 10 years? And there's been a lot of speculation about artificial intelligence and some people who have said, you know, artificial intelligence will replace your doctor. Part of me says, bring it. Like if somebody can effectively replace me and it can be done so that people have better access, bring it on. I'm happy to see it. Uh, so far, I have yet to see proof that technology can replace the work that I do. And patients are sicker. I mean, just the complexity of what we're dealing with, because 10 years ago, if I had somebody that came in with stage three, four non-small cell lung cancer, that was, a, that was kind of a death sentence. If I had someone who came in with you know, a certain type of lymphoma, th that was a death sentence. We've advanced the biotechnology landscape where I, I can take someone with stage four lung cancer and I can see them through to actually having a great quality of life potentially. But then that means that I'm now taking care of patients who have had not one, not two, not three, but four primary cancers. So we're doing a really good job helping people live longer. But when I have a new patient that's over the age of 60 or 70, and many times I'll have patients in their 80s and 90s, I, how am I expected to do that in a 15-minute visit? That's insane. Could you imagine wanting that kind of care? No, but that's what we have because the, the way we reimburse, I'm just constantly trying to shove more in. I don't even like talking about it as burnout. We're treating people what we think they're worth and we're telling people in primary care they're not worth that much. So Chris Kohler, why are big hospital systems buying primary care? If they're such money losers, why are they buying primary care? What is this consolidation doing to access? Hospitals are economic actors. And if they don't need a profit, they still want to grow. And the way to grow is to gain leverage in negotiation with commercial insurers and extracting higher prices from them. In that, primary care is a very valuable asset because as Kavita said, they generate referrals for the high volume specialties and they're historically undervalued. So I don't have to pay them everything that they're worth. So you have created a set of economic incentives that reward growth, reward size, reward transactions, not care. And primary care clinicians are a pawn in that. And I think what Kavita is saying is 
those are completely misguided in terms of what patients want when they get sick. When they're really sick, they want a trusted relationship. And that's what good primary care can provide. And we're at the risk where it's not going to be around. I have to interject here because I trained in a primary care residency track in internal medicine. I did that with full gusto and pride because I really do, did, do, and still believe in the value of a primary care. The ability I have to come into someone's life and be dropped in, even in like non-moments of crisis, I think that's a privilege. I think it's why a lot of us got called to medicine, but why I really enjoyed primary care. I get to know people over time. I will tell you, I have more and more colleagues that work around me, myself included, who are willing to give up money if they can get some of that autonomy back. When I say autonomy, it's the ability to create your work environment that allows for you to deliver better patient care. The autonomy that I have always been looking for is some ability to influence how my own schedule is created. A lot of what I think physicians struggle with is that they feel like so much of what we walk into, we come out of medicine, we're incredibly well-trained, but we walk into environments where we're just kind of, I feel like I'm just a little widget. I'm a square peg and I'm hammered, hammered, hammered to fit into this circle. And, and nothing makes me sadder, Rachel, than when I lose one of my colleagues to a concierge practice or to a cosmetic boutique or a medical spa or they become like a physician burnout coach, which we desperately need because those opportunities give them that autonomy. And there's the phrase moral injury, and I don't want to misappropriate it. But if you've been in primary care long enough, there is an incredibly distressing psychological aftermath of what has happened practicing primary care. And, and, and again, this is not, I hope that somebody smarter than me and with support of, of leaders like Chris can fix this. But my hope for that window to happen in my lifetime is quickly dwindling. That's Dr. Kavita Patel. She's a primary care physician, and she's also former director of policy for the Office of Intergovernmental Affairs and Public Engagement in the Obama administration, and Chris Kohler. He's president of the Millbank Memorial Fund, and he's also former insurance commissioner of the state of Rhode Island. This is Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. Next time, can we fix our broken system of primary care? We have to make it more relational, less of a business and more relational. We need to create more time for that relationship development so that primary care doctors have fewer patients and can actually focus in and be present with the ones they do have. That's next time on Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Rachel Gottbaum.